Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is Wednesday. Let me make sure I have the date right. January 10th, 2024. Uh, before I bring on my distinguished guest, tell you what's in the news. Two breaking stories uh, that I'm going to try to deliver with a straight face somehow. Or the first one is easier to deliver with a straight face. Uh, I just got word of uh, and over the wire that Chris Christie is announcing he will drop out of the presidential race. Uh, no big surprise there. He should have probably dropped out a long time ago. He had no chance of winning. Uh, you, you're not going to win the Republican primary for president uh, by now denouncing, openly denouncing Donald Trump. The, the game they play is to pretend he doesn't exist <laughs> and to promise to pardon him. But you cannot win if you take the stand that uh, he should be punished for his crimes. Uh, and then this is an so unbelievable, hilarious moment. And I don't know. At some point, you just have to laugh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, congressional hearing today, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Once again, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, throwing around photos of Hunter Thompson. Uh, Hunter Thompson. <laughs> That's a Freudian slip. Uh, Hunter Biden naked. Uh, it's just a great delight that uh, mag has this is part of the MAGA strategy of course uh to it it does it's a twofold strategy one fire up their base with the notion uh that uh there is some kind of a biden uh crime family that they're fighting uh and two just to sort of like throw out the notion for everybody else out there that they're all the same they're all crooks they are you the, biden's no better than trump anything trump's done biden's done so there's no purpose or point uh, in holding uh, Trump accountable uh, for his crimes uh, or not voting for him. Uh, would, <laughs> but it's just so hilarious, like this emphasis they have uh, on a Hunter Biden uh, and the, like this need to, to show these pictures of him naked. It's kind of like tied to their obsession that somehow or other Jeffrey Epstein's list, which as far as I know is a non-existent list, uh, but Jeffrey Epstein brought in more Democrats and Republicans, ignoring once again the fact that uh, Donald Trump was pals with Jeffrey Epstein. Very strange, bizarre uh, propaganda that MAGA puts out because essentially they make an argument and they just want you to pretend the Donald Trump aspect of the argument. So, you know, like, well, Donald Trump's crimes don't matter, but Biden's do. Okay. Uh, and uh, Jeffrey Epstein is horrible. And, and anybody who's associated with him is uh, horrible, except for Donald Trump. That's the uh, news that's breaking today uh, as we turn our attention to the legal issues of Donald Trump with uh, one of my favorite guests in the world. Uh, favorite guest, introduce yourself. Well, hello, Ben. Happy New Year to you. Uh, my name is Jim Coogan. I am a trial lawyer. And I recently learned that one of my credentials is just being a guest on this show. That's something to be very proud of, according to Peter Cunningham. Uh, and I am as well. It's it's a lot of fun to do this. So uh, it's good to be here. It's good to talk about law and the 
dangerous, entertaining, and strange ways that it intersects with politics. Yes. Uh, and yeah, PC was a guest last week. Uh, and I, I love my guests because uh, unlike uh, Pat uh, McPhee, is that his name? The, uh, the sports podcast? He's not his podcast. I guess he is a podcaster, yeah. Uh, I don't pay my guests a million dollars a year to show up on my show. Uh, oh, whoa, whoa, Eric, whoa, whoa. What's that? <laughs> Wait a minute. It's the first Jim Coogan heard of that. Uh, he, I think I did tell you the check's in the mail. It's been in the mail for three years. Uh, terrible mail service. Uh, that's what Aaron Rodgers got. A million dollars a year, Jim Coogan. Okay. A million dollars just to get into Twitter spat with uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Or to, oh, my God. To insinuate some uh, awful things about him that I don't think will bear out whenever the rest of those documents come through. So, well, okay. So yeah. And I don't want to go down this path. I talked about an earlier show with Monroe Anderson, uh, but uh, Jimmy, uh, uh, Jimmy Kimball fired back a counter punch after Aaron Rodgers uh, strongly suggested that uh, the documents coming out about Jeffrey Epstein would link Jimmy Kimmel to him, even though they, of course, there's no reason they would just made it up. And then his backtrack, which he did on the Pat McPhee show yesterday, I don't know if you saw that, uh, Jim Coogan, where he sort of, I never said he was going to be, <laughs> I was saying something, blah, blah, blah. You know, when you have to explain yourself like that, it's pretty embarrassing. And then I noticed uh, McPhee announced that uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers is taking a break from the show for a while. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lord, what a joke. All right. Um, so much uh, Trump news, uh, the legal aspect of Trump news. Jim Coogan comes here and explains the law for us. Really appreciate him doing this. Has been doing it for a long time on my show. Uh, let's just start with the one that I'm utterly obsessed with because it's essentially a ballot access case. And I've been following ballot access cases in Chicago and Illinois uh, going back to the last century. Um, and this, of course, uh, is the... The fact that the Supreme Court has agreed uh, to hear the case coming out of Colorado, where the Supreme Court of Colorado, four to three, voted to boot uh, Trump off the ballot uh, because he violated a stipulation in the 14th Amendment. Uh, we've been talking about this a lot uh, on the show. Jim, why don't you just uh, give your, just start with your general thoughts and uh, on this issue, and then we'll get into the specifics. Well, one thing that occurred to me recently thinking about how this is being framed and you have correctly identified that this is a ballot access issue, which makes it interesting to it and analogize it to other ballot access issues like the way that that works in the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois or, or just in general to run for president is a very complicated process. It takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of boots on the ground to get registered in every state. And, and we're, as an American political group, you have this constant refrain during election season, but even in off seasons, when people who are not maybe quite as engaged in politics get frustrated that it's a two-party system. Why does it have to be a two-party system? Why don't we have other choices? Where's a third party? When will there be a third party? And part of the challenge is being able to marshal all the resources that it takes to register in every state, because there are 50 of them. And they've got 50 different secretaries of state, 50 different, although I'm sure they're, they're all similar, and I'm not an expert on exactly what they require, but different sets of rules, uh, petitions that need to be filed, paperwork that needs to be filed. It takes a lot of work. So even the notion that there's a libertarian party that I think is going to be on the ballot in every state, <clears throat> that takes a lot of work for a smaller group like that. And so one of the things that you come back to is, while it can be enormously frustrating to feel like you're wedged into choosing just between Republican and a Democrat uh, as your presidential option or for other offices for the most part, there's a lot of reasons why. And it also includes just the simple structure of the Constitution and that there's, there's just no lane for other parties to gain enough power in Congress to be relevant because it's not, there's no prime minister. It's not a parliamentary system. But another thing that occurred to me, which I think is, is kind of fascinating, is the historical parallel. Because when you think back 2015, 2016, when Donald Trump launched his presidential campaign that got him into office by some bizarre, vile miracle, 
one of the things that really set him off and motivated him to run for office was that he was being mocked by Barack Obama back at a White House correspondence dinner. But the reason that Barack Obama felt the need or I guess felt the, the desire to mock him and made what I think was a very funny joke about Trump that sadly kind of came true was because Trump had spent months doing birtherism, engaged in this half-cocked, baseless, evidence-free denial that Barack Obama was born in the United States of America in the state of Hawaii. Um, you know, that, gosh, before MAGA came along, that was a very strange uh, episode in American political history. You had all these people who were microanalyzing the PDF of his birth certificate when they finally produced it. That certificate of live birth, I think, was the way it was characterized in the 60s in Hawaii. Um, you know, this, I can remember watching YouTube videos where somebody's breaking down how it's not real. It's a, it's a fake PDF that someone concocted, but Trump had been going around saying Barack Obama was never born in the United States and never should have been the president. Well, that's also a ballot access issue. The, the requirement that the president be a natural born citizen of the United States. It's right there in the constitution along with being 35 years old. So it's kind of funny that now after going through a Trump presidency, we find ourselves presented with a legal challenge that is not only actually based on the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, which can't stop reminding everybody that I talk to and the listeners to this show, it's part of the Constitution. Doesn't matter if you haven't heard about it before. Doesn't matter if you haven't thought about it very much. It's just as, mar- as much a part of the Constitution as Article One that creates the Congress or the First Amendment that creates the, the protections for free speech that the government can't interfere with your speech. So now, not only is it clearly there, but we watched it happen. And the more evidence that's rolled out since the January 6th committee was engaged in what they were doing, and then even more evidence in the past week or so, indications from interviews that Jack Smith has conducted with uh, members of the Trump contingent who had refused to talk to the January 6th com- committee, who are admitting, apparently, that Trump was the one who sent that tweet about Mike Pence failing to step up and do his duty, that uh, nobody else was in the room with him, that he was in his room or in the dining room by the Oval Office with his arms crossed watching TV, and no one else had his phone, so he must have sent it, which was clearly inciting people to go do violence to Mike Pence. So, you know, even now we're still, we're learning more things about exactly what happened. Unlike a situation where nobody had any real evidence that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States, you know, despite Joe Arpaio's cold case posse heading down there from Arizona. You remember that bizarre? <laughs> oh yeah, I, mean, I do remember everything that. Everything about yeah. it was racist, yeah. vile, offensive, and preposterous. And they never came up with any serious evidence because it's just not true. But instead, compared to that, when we had people screaming and yelling about how that person couldn't have been president, here's something that we all witnessed and have mounds of evidence that this happened that should not entitle Donald Trump to be president or to run for president pursuant to the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So it's quite a contrast between these two things. Uh, I, Before we get into the specifics of what to re, uh, re, repeat uh, the specifics of why the 14th Amendment uh, would prohibit Trump from having ballot access. I just have to comment on something totally tangential what you said, because you brought back a memory. And it's a great parallel you made between uh, Donald Trump trying to use uh, the Constitution to deny access uh, of Barack Obama's access to the ballot. Uh, and the fact that he's crying like a little baby when uh, the same thing's being done to him. Um, it's classic MAGA, uh, but I think some. I think more many times about the way Barack Obama dealt with Donald Trump in 2011. I think that's when it was, uh, and it was happened to be the night before the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. Just a, like a point that I can never really escape, Jim, because it just shows you how Barack Obama's brain works, that he was able to deliver that that speech and make those jokes while on his brain was what the reality was going to, uh, what, what he was facing for the next day. But I, I believe it was such a miscalculation in retrospect on Obama's part that he could somehow or other uh, undercut Donald Trump by making light of him. 
and there was a misestimation, underestimation of Donald Trump as a political figure, which Democrats have been guilty of for a long time. All of us have. Uh, but also a misreading of the room, not the room in which he delivered the remarks, but the room being the metaphorical way of describing the country and the alienation people felt from the Democratic Party uh, and particularly the Barack Obama administration and the Hillary Clinton establishment. Uh, you know, Donald Trump plugged into something that I don't think Democrats took serious or they misunderstood uh, an anger and hostility toward them. And uh, Donald Trump was successfully was able to successfully harness that and get elected in 2016. And now it's still there. That, that hostility and the anger toward Democrats hasn't gone anywhere. You know, the, the, the notion that the Democratic Party doesn't represent me is still very much alive in this country, Jim. And I know you're here to talk law, but you're also a political junkie. I've learned this through the years. I believe that Democrats have never successfully confronted this, this feeling that underlies uh, their vulnerability, which is that they've turned off a lot of voters. So when you just con- you brought all that up to my mind when you were alluded to Donald to Barack Obama trying to dismiss Donald Trump by making fun of him. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know that. Obama could have understood that Trump's appeal would be to rural Americans, to blue collar Americans, to the kind of contingent that eventually comprised MAGA, just because it didn't exist or that group existed. And they were already, they saw him as an elite law professor, urban foreigner in their minds who didn't represent America and that they were, they were angered by anything he did. I don't know that he could, could have, perceived that there would be a connection between the two because Donald Trump as much as of an elitist as anybody in American politics. But the notion that doing something that just kind of sticks it to somebody that um, makes light of somebody who is, is a contrary political figure who, at least at that point, the one thing that Obama would have been aware of is that he was trying to tap into that, whether it was to drum up TV ratings for The Apprentice or just to draw attention to himself, which is his, is one of his primary focuses in life in general. Yeah, I think it's fair to point out that that he failed to observe that. And let me here's my thought that occurred to me while you were saying that if someone like former President Obama would say that he's the kind of person that holds himself to a higher standard, then Maybe it's not fair that that this would somehow trigger an entire political movement that was motivated in part on anger just at him, just like the Tea Party was and the same, you know, that group that started rumbling after 2008. But life isn't fair. And and if and if you if you would profess to be a decent person and a better person and his wife, of course, famously saying that when they go low, we go high. If that's the standard you want to hold yourself to, then maybe you have to, regardless of whether it's fair, because otherwise you do foster more division and alienation, even if that's not exactly what your intention was. Why wouldn't it be fair? Because you've got somebody on the other side who screams and yells division and tells people he, you know, would would put them in gulags and jails and wants to be a dictator on day one. It's not there's not an equivalency between the two, but I don't know if it makes any difference. It's just the reality of things. Yeah, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, restrain myself and not uh, come up with a, uh, a counterpoint or even just a, a comment because I want to move on to the legal ends and not turn this into a completely political conversation. Uh, but uh, there's so much I could say about going uh, high when they go low. And uh, But I'll move on. All right. I'd like to hear you make the case uh for denying Trump access to the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. Go ahead. Okay. So as you and I have discussed, nobody could make the case more comprehensively than professors Baud and Stokes Pulse, the two professors who created the entire law review article that is over 100 pages long, breaks down the 14th Amendment and Section 3 in great detail and go, and basically provides counter arguments to any potential way that someone would say that either this wasn't an insurrection or the the 
amendment didn't apply to the acts that Trump took leading up to and on January 6th, or that somehow this shouldn't apply because of some other legal challenge or whatever the other uh, responses that will inevitably be argued in, or I, I have been argued in Colorado, for example, or for, or in Minnesota. But to summarize, this is my read on things is the 14th amendment. While it does not specifically name the office of the president, when it lists the officers who, if they took an oath to defend the constitution later fomented or were, were providing aid or comfort to an insurrection against the constitution and that that disqualifies from them from the office. I think that any serious legal reading of it has to include the office of the president. Article two of the constitution creates the office of the president. It refers to it as the office of the president. Uh, and if somebody were to say that the actions that he took were as a candidate, but not president, I don't think that's a distinction with a difference while he's still holding the office. Even though he had lost at that point, he was exercising influence on state's attorneys general, on groups that would be foolish enough to sign fake uh, elector affidavits, on Congress people, on senators, using the power of the presidency. Because as everybody would have been aware, he wasn't vacating the office for another two weeks by January 6th. So I think I think the amendment clearly applies to him. The next part of it would be, was it an insurrection? Was there an insurrection, uh, some sort of conspiracy that comprised or, or constituted an insurrection that he played a part in? And all of the evidence that I have heard from witnesses who were with him, who understood his state of mind, who understood his intentions, clearly supports that. Because there are several people who have said, he was clearly aware that he had lost, but insisted on, for example, the, the evidence being created that, that that research group was going to go out and find that there had been fraud. And then he's told that it, there isn't any. Even our people have looked. And he continues to insist that it's true, that, he's, that there's fraud, that, that somebody has to find fraud, that Brad Raffensperger in Georgia should go find 11,877 votes He's naming the exact number. It's This is not, you know, there's been for eight years now, seven plus years now, we've been parsing the words of Donald Trump, trying to decide whether he means it literally or figuratively, or can you compare what he's saying to what he's actually doing? And does it mean that he knows what he's saying? Or is he just trying to put on an act? Or is he crazy? Or does he just think he's a mafia boss? Forget about all that. Just look at the words that he said and look at the actions that he took. And if he has his his agents like Rudy Giuliani calling senators to remind them that they've got to stand up and object, and if he's got, you know, making calls to try to influence the count and the certification of votes, I, I think there was there's that famous clip where he's calling the cell phone of the the governor of Arizona at the time, who was a Republican as he's like signing the documents certifying that Arizona had elected Joe Biden and that the electors from Arizona were to deliver their, their paperwork that Joe Biden was elected by the voters of Arizona. And the guy's like turning his phone off. Cause that's, so those are all actions that are intended to stop the constitution from being carried out. Because again, as we, I think it was actually the last show that I was here, Mike Pence apparently would testify that, he specifically said to the president, you know that you lost, you know that I can, you know that I can't take these actions. So these are all conversations that have been had at some point. So this means he had the intent and engaged in actions that were directly intended to subvert the peaceful transfer of power pursuant to a lawful election that he was aware was not subject to massive and rampant fraud and that should be certified because it clearly was legitimate. So that's a summary, uh, but I think that that kind of lays out the critical reasons why. The other part of it is the 14th Amendment is very brief. It's very straightforward. And if you look at it historically, which I'm sure that the Supreme Court justices will look at it that way, it was written in the wake of the Civil War. It was intended to keep people who had previously 
sworn an oath to the Constitution, and then were part of the, the southern states that rebelled against the Constitution and the United States from going back to Congress and from holding office in those southern states to interfere with Reconstruction. It's it's the same thing. It's this, and I'll, by the way, I think it's personally my view is that it's the same strain of anti-Americanism that's been baked into our American experience since the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've always been fighting against ourselves, but that's a broader conversation that yeah. we can't fit in this in this podcast. But I think that's exactly a. I think that's what Trump has been harnessing since the minute he ran for president. You know, the echoes of those who were pro-slavery and the echoes of those who were angry about civil rights. But also, that's literally what he did from the moment that it became clear to him that he was going to lose, including, by the way, take it all the way back to days before the election itself. There's evidence that his advisors were telling him, you will, it will appear as if you are winning these states. And then when all the votes come in, you, w- you may lose them or you will lose them. Yeah. What does he do? goes out in front of the cameras at 2.30 in the morning and declares himself the winner. That, that's not legitimate. And he did that as the president. You can't do that. Not, at least I don't accept that you can do that in the United States. All right. Um, so, therefore, he's violated, uh, to follow up your argument, uh, the stipulation in the 14th Amendment that said uh, oath breakers uh, cannot serve, uh, cannot run for the office, uh, so he has to be removed from the ballot. If he's removed from the ballot, obviously he can't be the candidate, uh, and the Republicans will have to go to a, a, uh, another option, uh, Nikki Haley or uh, Ron DeSantis. Or, don't say Chris Christie. Yeah, don't say Chris Christie. is <laughs> not an option uh, as we speak. Uh, all right, I will now throw to you what I call the Adolfo argument, uh, a name for my dear friend Adolfo Mondragon, uh, who made it to me uh, in a passionate debate that we had, not on the mic, off mic, I want to bring him on. Uh, and his argument, if I could be fair to it as best I can, Adolfo, I'm going to do my best, um, is that while everything you said may be true in theory, uh, it has not been established in a court of law that Donald Trump did all these things. In other words, yes, there's evidence that he did all these things, but there's difference between evidence of, of it being an insurrectionist and being deemed as such in a court of law. Uh, and so without that official deeming of him by a judge or a jury after a trial, after evidence is presented by the prosecutors and after evidence is presented by Donald Trump and his lawyers and they get to examine, cross-examine the witnesses against them and uh, counter the arguments that the prosecutors make. Uh, without such trial being made, you cannot call him an insurrectionist and therefore uh, you cannot say, deny him access to the ballot. Your thoughts on the Adolfo counter-argument? It's, it, it's very insightful because that is one of the issues that the Supreme Court will have to grapple with. It's the question of whether the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is self-executing or not. So the argument from Professors Baud and Stokes, are, or Pulse, are that it is self-executing, that on its face it's self-executing. The language of the section implies that it is self-executing because it specifically says that an act of two-thirds of Congress can reverse the determination that someone's ineligible to hold office subject to this amendment. So I have no doubt that two things would be, these would be the two arguments that you'd make in favor of Donald Trump being eligible to be president. One, that a judge needs to make this determination based on an evidentiary hearing. I don't think a jury necessarily would have to hear that. I think it could be just by a judge, but that there would be witnesses, as you just described. Or, alternatively, that it would only constitute some sort of breach of the oath of office if he were impeached and convicted by the Senate, which didn't happen. It almost did, but it didn't. 57 votes, I think, in favor of uh, conviction, including seven Republicans. Um, So... The, the question then is, they will, they will have to make a decision about whether that, whether it's self-executing or not. That, I don't know what they're going to do with that. That is absolutely one of the off-ramps that they could decide that Colorado's decision is, is vacated because 
Well, I mean, there was an evidentiary hearing in Colorado. That's actually one of the other twists here. And there was, there were arguments, there were witnesses, the judge, the trial court judge made a decision based upon evidence. Uh, So it would, then the question is whether that would apply across the board. Would the Supreme Court adopt an opinion by the Colorado Supreme Court that affirms a trial court decision in Colorado to all 50 states? Um, Or they would rule that, uh, that it, that some other standard applies because it, it would be, it is actually fairly unusual for there to be something before the court that wasn't subject to a full-blown hearing at a lower court level and sometimes multiple lower court hearings. Um, so it, it's a great question. I mean, Adolfo is correct that that's something they're going to have to deal with. I honestly don't know whether that's what they'll choose to, to use as their excuse not to make a decision about it. All right, now we get to uh, the heart of things. Uh, their excuse not to make a decision on things. Uh, I've argued, I know you've heard this, me argue this many times, uh, that if you read the, I, I, I read, I'm one of the few guys who actually read the law review article. I told you, Jim, I made the joke. It was as close as going to law school as I'll ever come, reading that article with all the footnotes. Uh, so I did read the article. And the moment I read the article, I just said, oh yeah, he's gone. I mean, he should be, if it was, you know, all things being equal, he's, he should be kicked off the ballot. It's like the equivalent of not allowing a, a, an aldermanic candidate in Chicago to run because he or she has outstanding uh, water bills, which is, I don't know if it's still the rule, but there was a rule. You cannot owe the city money and be a candidate for office. So you got to pay up the bills before you submit your uh, uh, request to go on the ballot. Uh, and if you haven't paid up your bills after you've submitted requests, you're gone. All right. So to this to me seemed, oh, yeah, he's gone. That was an insurrection. We all know it was. Uh, and uh, but then, of course, I say there's no way the Supremes are going to kick Donald Trump off the ballot. So I want you to uh, combine your political hats and your legal hats. Uh do you agree with me that there's no way the Supremes are going to use their authority to kick Donald Trump off the ballot? Or do you have a different view of it? If the court was comprised differently, then my prediction probably would be different. Because I think that there, if you had nine fair-minded justices and none of them were potentially part of or at least married to part of the broader conspiracy, <laughs> yeah. then yeah. I think that the, the outcome would be different. My concern is that because this is such a political question, that they, the nine of them, all nine of them, regardless of who appointed them or what their political persuasion might be, will not be able to make the difficult decision because of political concerns. And lots of times, political questions like this or other things that they deem a political question, they punt on. Because their thought is, well, let's leave it up to the voters. And ultimately, that's part of what a democracy is based upon, is that, for example, if the voters in the United States of America were intended to, to accept this and don't see it as detrimental and don't see it as disqualifying, and they vote for him and he wins the majority electoral college votes, then okay. Apparently, this is what the country wants. Uh, and that's that's kind of like, it's sort of one of the most fundamental questions about not just ballot access, but any of these these issues with respect to this particular president, because he's challenged the Constitution in so many ways. Are they, are there any rules at all? Because if there are no rule, I mean, if you said it's really just up to the voters, then you're also saying, then none of the constitution matters. What part of it would possibly have any validity at that point? If he tramples the first amendment by what he used to call it, opening up the libel laws because he always wanted to sue people for saying things about him that he didn't like. Or if he starts imprisoning people, or if he sends a bunch of people to concentration camps uh, and, and violates the fourth and fifth amendments, but the voters voted for him and they knew that he might do this then apparently it's just it's just a pure democracy at that point and we don't really have a constitution anymore so the thought that i have about this that i hope is also a consideration even for neil gorsuch or for brett kavanaugh or for john roberts 
or for Amy Coney Barrett is the moment that you concede that it is purely a populist system and it's purely a question of would the voters excuse this behavior is the moment that you have also rendered your Supreme Court to be irrelevant. Because unless, and this goes back to, to Marbury versus Madison, this goes back to the, the founding Supreme Court precedent that established that the United States Supreme Court would have supreme authority over what the Constitution meant with respect to constitutional questions as well as uh, arguments between the Federalist, you know, individual states and the federal government, individuals in the federal government, and where the Supreme Court felt in that line of authority. And they and that opinion, which was like a tax opinion, it's kind of a weird, you know, these things come before the court in strange ways in, at, at times. But John Marshall, the preeminent Supreme Court justice that's basically set the tone for what it meant to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court, asserted in that opinion that it was going to be the federal government's word and the Supreme Court's word that was final on these issues. A decision that says that this act, this constellation of acts by a person who was holding the office of president when he committed them is excused and either because it's fundamentally it's a political question or whichever other off-ramp that they choose, I believe and I, I, I agree with people like uh, Timothy Snyder and some of these other advocates who are talking about their role is to support and defend the Constitution. I think that a decision like that fails to meet their obligations to support and defend the Constitution because ultimately it would be conceding that they have no relevance. And I don't, I don't know why even those Republican-leaning justices would not would fail to appreciate that if he's the president again he's not going to respect their authority. And I don't know how that will first manifest itself in January of 2025 or February of 2025, but it will. No question about it. So what do I think they're going to do? I would like to think <laughs> that, that there is a five or six justice uh, constituency that would decide that, yes, this is sufficient, that a hearing has been conducted, but that any other questions about do we need more evidence could be remanded for more evidentiary hearings and do it on an expedited basis because all the re the record is out there. There's an en enormous record that's already established. And so if they were to punt it back on that basis, I would accept it. I think that could establish more uh, thorough precedent for it, which by the way, that's one other thing I wanted to mention. We have almost no precedent to work with here. There were decisions in the late 1800s based on this amendment, but the guy who authored the opinion, Samuel Chase, was notoriously corrupt. And so basically the opinions that were written, in fact, I think he was running for president. He was trying to get his name out there for president while he was deciding whether or not uh, one of the former Confederates couldn't hold office. So yeah. <clears throat> very, very useless precedent there. So that, it means that this court will be working with almost a you know, carte blanche and and almost nothing to base their opinion on other than you know documents and any record that was around the 14th amendment the 14th amendment itself and then everything that happened around the 2020 election yeah i'll push back a little bit yes there's very little uh, anything nothing like this before this the, when you do the particulars but again if you view this as a ballot access issue just fundamental decision you have to make. Is he violating the rules that govern access to the ballot? There are thousands and thousands of precedents. Uh, we talk about this in the show on a local level. Two committeemen candidates, sitting committeemen for the Democratic Party here in Chicago, have just been denied access to the ballot, I believe, because I think, I think that's the final opinion, because they didn't have enough valid signatures. So the issue of having to play by the rules is a fundamental issue about ballot access. And that's what this is, is the ballot access. Has he broken the rules? Uh, to use the analogy I love making, are, is the Supreme Court going to rule that Donald Trump is effectively allowed to play tennis without a net? Donald Trump is allowed to play tennis without a net or out of bound lines. No matter where he hits the ball, it's in play. If, is that what they're going to argue? To me, Jim, 
There's plenty of precedent on that matter. I know what you're saying specifically, bouncing him from the ballot for violating Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Yes, there's no precedent on this. Uh, but in terms of just ballot, that's why I don't buy the argument, oh, it's a undemocratic. Well, <laughs> you just, we have Jim rules. Coop, we yeah. have rules. Jim Coop, and it's okay to have rules. Yeah. You can't just go on the Ben Jarofsky show and go, I'm running for president. Uh, put me on the ballot in Iowa. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then sue the state of Iowa for not doing it for me. Yes. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yes. I mean, actually, considering the ballot, it, the only way this could be more of a wheelhouse Ben Jarofsky issue is if somehow it involved tiffs. <laughs> Public financing. If you can get public financing in this. Oh, that's funny, man. Tiffs. Oh, Lord. I'm now going to refrain from going out that path. I didn't, I didn't mean to offer it up. I, 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 it's uh, my mistake. <laughs> no, it's, tiffs are kind of on my mind these days, but uh, I'll restrain myself. All right. Uh, speaking of the Donald Trump as being above the law, we'll now transition into uh, the second legal matter. Uh, that I'm going to pick your brain about. Uh, and that is the claim made by Donald Trump's lawyer. And I can't remember which of his many lawyers made it. So you may have to help me on that one, Jim. Uh, but arguing uh, <laughs> regarding uh, the case of whether he could be prosecuted for his role in the insurrection, he essentially argued that as if as a president, Donald Trump is exempt from any prosecution which is a staggering argument to make. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, uh, look, it's... Uh, so, as you have pointed out, and I think we were talking about this a little bit before the show, judges, when they are entertaining appellate oral arguments on these kinds of issues, will often push them to their logical conclusion because if they allow something to happen, then the expectation from the law from the way we're trained as lawyers to look at these things is this somebody will do whatever that thing is eventually. If, if you, if you allow for some exception to a rule, then someone's going to drive a truck through it. So you have to consider whether you're setting bad precedent you have to consider whether some, if something taken to its logical conclusion would create an outcome that is unacceptable or that you would never have allowed, then somebody asking for just a little nibble at it, you can't let them have that either. So the idea of presidential immunity for any, any, well, you know, what, what's kind of fascinating to me is that the notion of presidential immunity has never been extended to anything that the president does while they're president. It's supposed to apply to official acts. There absolutely are good reasons for that. I mean, on some level, an American citizen might be frustrated that presidents can't be held accountable for things that they might consider war crimes where they're, you know, ordering bombing strikes in places that shouldn't be bombed. But it, the the validity to that and the merit to having presidential immunity for acts that are part of the roles that the president has under the Constitution is that they'd be paralyzed if they couldn't just take action, even if it's poorly decided, even if it's foolish, and even if it turns out to be wrong – you also have to consider that they're often making decisions in real time with limited information and they don't have the, the benefit of hindsight. And, and on some level, I think it's fair to accept that reality. So acts that they take as commander in chief, acts that they take uh, <clears throat> ordering things to happen or you know executive orders that are within the bounds of what they're allowed to do, they can't be sued personally for them later or held criminally responsible for them later. So part of it is which parts of these things that Trump was doing are, be, are to be considered official acts, and is that what they're arguing entitles him to immunity for them? I don't think that marshalling his White House staff or campaign staff, or I'm sure they were very muddled because that's just the way that he behaves, uh, to undermine the will of the voters in the 2020 election constitutes an official act. But Part of what was argued in this motion to dismiss uh, that was up before the appellate court was the question of whether, you know, how far do you extend this, 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 this immunity and how much, what things would he be immune from? And, and the logical conclusion is if he had his 
political opponent killed. He sent the military to do it. He, you know, he didn't go and strangle somebody to death or shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue himself. But let's say he ordered the CIA to do it. Would that be okay? Because it's ordering the CIA to do things is sort of an official act and it's part of his role as president. So could he do that? And then later on and, and never be prosecuted for it? Would that be okay? And God help us. I mean, lawyers make these arguments and then have to stand behind them and sort of waffle their way around it. But my understanding from the oral argument is that his attorney refused to answer some of these questions and actually did not directly confront the hypotheticals that were being presented to him on some of these questions. Um, so this motion would be to dismiss one of the Jack Smith case uh, in its entirety on the basis of immunity for the president of the United States. And so based on the reading from the questions, it would seem as if that's not going to fly, that, th that he's going to lose that motion to dismiss. The other consequence, though, is that it does delay the proceedings. It potentially delays the trial. Uh, I believe this is the case in which because Smith's team also continued to conduct discovery and, and disclose some information to Trump's lawyers that they filed a motion to hold him in contempt, which he was not in contempt. That's not how the procedures work. And continuing to, to disclose things in order to kind of keep things moving while the appellate court does its work is not a contemptuous act by the Smith team. But that was one of the other things that they're I mean, they're they're pulling on every possible lever, not sure which one will actually work. Uh, you know, it's like sitting in an airplane cockpit, not knowing how to be a pilot. They're just pulling on everything. Uh, and if the plane crashes, it's fine because they just don't want the trial to happen. So uh, and if my memory serves me correctly, uh, it, it wasn't this. I should put this in the form of a question because suddenly I'm not sure of myself. Wasn't this uh, the matter that uh, Jack Smith wanted to take straight to the Supremes and the Supremes said, no, this has to be uh decided by the, on the appellate level, and then we will uh, entertain it. Isn't that uh, the issue? It is. He made that argument that it's it's of a, a, such an important, you know, the case, obviously, it, I don't think anybody would dispute that it is of critical importance, but that it also is of critical importance for an election that's only 10 and a half months away at this point. Yeah. So, uh, so that once again, uh, th this ma no matter what this appellate court decides, the case will come before the Supremes. Uh, so I can believe that the appellate court will rule. I'm so jaded when it comes to it, Jim knows this. I'm just so jaded by the, the way judges behave. But I believe the appellate court will rule with Smith and it will come before the Supremes. I have a hard time seeing the Supremes buy this argument. Uh, going back to the uh, uh, to uh, the uh, the Colorado case, I could see I've said this uh, before to Mike. I could see Clarence Thomas going so far as to to argue that it was not insurrection, that it was it was not a case uh, of, uh, of violating you know any uh, laws. In fact, he was vigorously trying to preserve democracy, which is what Clarence Thomas's wife argues. Uh, so I could see him going that far. I can't imagine him in a million years, uh, Jim, ruling against Trump on Colorado. I don't know. I have no idea what the, how they'll handle it. You can already, you can imagine how the dissent would start. Some graphic imagery of the battlefield in, in Gettysburg or something like that. And describing that this, this is an insert or the, the Fort Sumter attack. Yeah. In, in South Carolina, in Charleston, that, that initiated the whole conflict, or at least the violent part of the conflict. Contrasting that to a speech that's being made or a few phone calls and then saying, yeah. well, of course, this isn't an insurrection. If this was the kind of thing that the yeah. people who or the, the the members of Congress who created the 14th Amendment had intended to to say was disqualifying, then there's no way that you could compare it to. Of course, that that I could write it for him at this point, I'm sure. Yeah. I, 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 they want to give essentially give Trump a pass. They well, that's what that's what Clarence yeah. Thomas's dissent will say. I, I, yeah. I would predict that with some some confidence. Absolutely, I, they 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 want to give him a pass. They don't want to declare uh, unilaterally that a president can't be prosecuted for his behavior in office. But uh, on this this particular president will be given a pass. It, that's how I feel. They'll ultimately come down to it. Uh, I, hey, listen, I hope I'm wrong.
<laughs> I hope I'm wrong. I've got so many bets on this, Jim Coogan. I've had so many lunches I'm going to owe and breakfasts. You know me. I love that breakfast place. You do. Uh, uh, all right. Let's close on a more or less humorous uh, <laughs> case. Uh, Donald Trump's appeal to give a closing argument. He's had so many cases against him. Suddenly he feels the urge uh, to be a lawyer. You know, I like to play lawyer in my conversations with you and many of my guests, but I've never in a million years would want to go into court ever deliver a closing argument, opening statement, what have you. Uh, talk a little bit about Donald Trump's proposal that he be given the opportunity to close, to offer a closing argument. So one of the litany of uh, criminal and civil prosecutions that have been brought against this former president that continues and has not concluded yet is the fraud trial, the the accusations by the attorney general of New York that the Trump organization and all its many, many, many LLCs and subparts were engaged in uh, wire fraud, bank fraud, mail fraud, and, and a variety of other activities by overvaluing properties for one set of one audience and then undervaluing those same properties for another audience. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump has a great affinity and affection for Judge Arthur Angeron, the trial judge in New York who's been overseeing the case, who has held him in contempt for uh, for calling out and uh, creating death threats that were targeting his staff, his his law clerk. It's been a whole circus, basically. And and I, I think that his attorneys and he himself have intended to create a circus out of it. Uh, all of the little press conferences as he walks out of court and barks at the the enclave of reporters and, and uh, news cameras that are waiting for him there, declaring that he already won, declaring that the judge decided that Michael Cohen was a liar, all these false characterizations of what's been going on in the actual trial. So naturally, when the case is coming to a conclusion, uh, <laughs> the first word was that he had both asked for and was going to be allowed to deliver part of the closing argument for his side. For those of the uninitiated in the audience, in the course of a trial, you have opening statements. The plaintiff or the prosecution puts on their case, the defense puts on their case, and when it's all done, the lawyers get an opportunity to summarize what they think the evidence showed and deliver their, their most persuasive effort to persuade that jury. In this case, there is no jury, so a reminder, this is a judge that he has publicly <laughs> lambasted, mocked, called names, in, insinuated was corrupt, not insinuated, said was corrupt yeah. on his truth machine. Uh, this was th So his intent was that somehow being a part of his defense team's closing arguments, he should be a part of it. He should be saying God knows what and wanted to participate. So uh, I think calling on his better angels, just judge, I think they call him justices at the trial court level in New York. Justice Angeron said uh, today, apparently J Donald Trump is not going to be allowed to offer whatever wisdom and insight that he intended to offer as part of a closing argument, which for Justice Angeron's part, I can only imagine that he is trying to spare himself the agony of listening to <laughs> you know, a, a windbag like Donald Trump go on and on about his great properties and his whatever valuations. And you, he probably would have spent half of it accusing the judge of fraud because he's done that publicly. Absolutely. And, and you, yep. you're the one committing the fraud because yep. you lied about my apartment yep. and you lied about my, yep. my wonderful business that, and none of these banks have ever complained that there was ever a problem and so on. And so there's no victim here except for me in an, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I could write that closing argument just like uh, <laughs> Justice Thomas's dissent. Um, and so could Justice Ingram. The poor guy's been sitting through this whole fiasco. Um, so the answer is no. Um, and I guess it, maybe it doesn't matter. It's not going to be on TV. So who, you know, maybe Trump himself wouldn't even care because best case scenario for him, he would have done whatever he did and then go out and tell everybody that whatever he did was amazing. So he's now being deprived of that opportunity. Yes. Uh, I and ultimately he will do that. You know it as well as I do. He'll start sobbing about how unfair it is that he wasn't able to. Uh, they wouldn't let me do the closing argument. He wins either way. Just like yeah. we've just like we've refrained here, talking about him means he's winning, in the sense yeah. that he is the center of American political discourse, even if it's for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. And you know it's funny because um, 
there was an article I read, I can't remember where, but it was uh, to this point where the writer was saying, I feel I've given too much attention uh, to Donald Trump. I'm not going to pay attention to him. I forget how long this writer went without paying attention to him. Let's say it was a week. Uh, And then he just summarized all the insanity that Trump (laughs) delivered in that week. And this goes back to Obama. Close by going back to the Obama point. You know, you have to pay attention to him. He's a powerful political figure in our country. He is perhaps, I used to think it was Nixon, but I think this, this, this man is one of the shrewdest uh, students of the American public that I've ever seen uh, in public office. He understands what motivates Americans in a way that no politician on a national level uh, you could say, I guess Reagan uh, is in the same ballpark. And so to ignore him is just, it's like to ignore reality, Jim. You can't, you know, it's, uh, I remember when it started USA Today. Well, it was USA Today. I think it was USA Today said, we're going to cover Donald Trump on the entertainment pages because we don't take him as a viable news uh, personality. And boy, were they wrong. Uh, so, well, that's one of the problems. That's yeah. the way that he's hacked the American news media by yeah. becoming endlessly entertaining. If you're laughing at how stupid he is, if you're laughing at how mean he is, if you're laughing at him because you actually think he's funny, you know, and I would say you combine something like Reagan, Nixon, and George Wallace and, and yeah. there, and, and there's, but look, Ben, just to support your point, I'm not going to argue with you because we both know it's true. A con artist knows his mark. And, and I don't, and it doesn't, okay, maybe he's not persuading 50, 60 something percent of the American public, but, and I don't think he really understands how the electoral college works even to this day, but he does know that you can win even as a minority candidate in this country because he already did, first of all. And, uh, and, and if you persuade enough people in the right places, and it certainly he's had, he had political uh, operatives back in 2016 that were explaining this to him, like, here's the path. You don't need to win all 50 states. You win the right 27, 28 states and you can be president. Uh, so it, as a con artist, he, A, he knows who he's tapping into. He has, he has captured and tapped into that vein of resentment, of grievance, of white grievance. And I think the the, mo- the most amazing part about it for him is that it fits his personality so perfectly. Yeah. He feels all these things. Yeah. Despite the fact that he's been given everything in life, he feels all this resentment and anger. So going out and screaming and yelling about it every single day is just a natural fit. So no pressure, Supreme Court. It's up to you to save our democracy. That's all. That's all there is to it. You're going to force the Republican Party to come up with a different candidate other than Donald Trump. And by the way, I would submit to you that uh, that candidate would probably have a better chance of winning or as good a chance of winning the presidency as Donald Trump. So it's not as though you're uh, depriving the Republicans an opportunity to capture the White House. I don't believe that, actually. I don't believe that. I think Nikki Haley uh, has as much of a chance to beat Joe Biden as Donald Trump does, maybe even a better chance, Uh, or even Ron DeSantis. Although it looks like Nikki Haley will be the uh, the candidate uh, who lasts the longest in this primary challenge. All right, Jim, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you very much. You'll probably come on next month to break down more of the uh, legal news with Donald Trump. And politics will continue to creep into our conversations. Because, ladies and gentlemen, one thing I've learned about Jim, he is a political junkie. Okay? <laughs> he hides behind the law, but he's a political junkie uh, from way back. Yeah. So uh, uh, you want to promote your podcast before I let you go? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, so this week, I actually, uh, the show that I put out, I, I decided to come up with a few different styles of, of uh, finding ways to talk about the law. So it's called Coogan Knows the Law, dot, 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 can be funny. So we're looking at things that might seem a little humorous on their face, but actually lead to an inspection and an investigation of, uh, well, this particular episode is about honking uh, with your car horn, whether you can be arrested for that, which you can apparently, and where that intersects with the First Amendment and free speech. So, 
Wow. Uh, check out I, Coogan Knows the I, Law. It's under the same feed, but just a slow, little different spin on the title. Very good. I have to think about that. Is that a violation of the First Amendment? All right. Uh, thank you very much, Jim Coogan. Appreciate you coming on the show. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 